Good morning, guys. My name is Benjamin Pinkerton. I'm the college pastor here at Grace Anderson, and it is a pleasure to be here with you guys. I really do, as Corby said, I hope that your holiday was a really sweet, wonderful time uh, where you got to be with family or friends, you got to enjoy an amazing meal, you got to think about the wonderful, wonderful things in your life, the gifts that God has given you. And so in light of that, I thought it would be really amazing for us to get to uh, spend this morning thinking about how we can be a people who truly live with hearts of gratitude in any and every season, in any and every season. So as I was kind of thinking about this message, uh, these, I decided to go a little bit through church history and look at some amazing pioneers and people in the faith that have done some remarkable things. And I wanted to talk about these two gentlemen, as well as five of their companions, these two guys, Alan Francis Gardner, Dr. Richard Williams. In 1850, uh, Alan Francis Gardner really felt the calling to go and meet uh, these these villages in South America, these islands of unreached people groups, people that had never heard of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. And so he's raising money and he finally is able to go and he brings with him Dr. Richard Williams and five other guys. And they're so excited because they're gonna get to finally go and spread the good news of Jesus to people who desperately need to hear it on these islands. And as they're going Uh, ultimately they become shipwrecked. These seven guys, they get shipwrecked on the island of Picton, which is the southernmost tip of South America. And right when they land and they're shipwrecked, they barely get onto the island, Uh, local natives uh, attack them. And so uh, they fend them off by uh, praying. And then so the people, they gave them gifts, they prayed and the people left, but they realized uh, all our supplies kind of went down in the shipwreck. But good thing, we will be restocked soon because they're supposed to be restocked in six months from a a different ship that was coming through. But unfortunately, that ship actually uh, got stopped and couldn't make the, the voyage to bring their supplies to them. And so these seven men who had gone to spread the good news of Jesus to an unreached people group, uh, were shipwrecked, attacked, and then eventually all seven starved to death. You didn't see that coming. Pretty sad that they, they, in this moment, you think, wow, this is the finally the time that God's gonna move in their lives to, to reach these unreached peoples. And they get to this island, they get attacked, the ship never comes to resupply them, and one by one, they all starve to death. And the only reason we even know some of the things that were going on with them is that they wrote journal entries right before they died. So I want you to just imagine the scene of these men that felt like they were walking in God's will and and they they believed they're doing the right thing and they wanted to see God move in powerful ways and, and help these people. And ultimately, how might you feel with all these unmet expectations and despair and death is just surrounding you? And you probably feel like a failure. And these are the journal entries we get from these two men specifically. First, Dr. Richard Williams. Ah, I am happy day and night, hour by hour, asleep or awake, I am happy beyond words and the poor compass of language to tell. God is indeed about my bed. Let all my beloved ones at home rest assured that I was happy 
beyond expression the night I wrote these lines and would not have changed situations with any man alive. That's bewildering. That's, that's what he wrote. And the last man uh, to die after all six other men died and he watched all his friends die was in fact the guy leading the expedition, Alan Francis Gardner. And we actually have his last journal entry uh, before he passed. It says this, the hope of glory, the hope laid up for me in heaven has filled my whole heart with joy and gladness. I am overwhelmed by the goodness of God. Overwhelmed by the goodness of God. When I read uh, articles like this and I look at men and women throughout history that have served the Lord and specifically those that have experienced really, really hard, uh, hard situations, circumstances, uh, and then I read entries like this, that somehow their posture towards the Lord is gratitude, is thankfulness, is, is this hope that goes beyond circumstances. It, it can't help but really make us wonder uh, why am I not that way? Like that's, that's the kind of man or woman I would want to be in this situation if I was facing these hardships and in the midst of doubt and insecurities and maybe even shame and pain uh, that I could turn towards God and be grateful. And in fact, scripture is pretty clear that we're supposed to rejoice always to thank God continuously. And so God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, he can help us become a people that can actually be uh, full of thankfulness and gratitude in any and every situation or circumstance, just like these two men. But my question then is uh, why? Why can we actually, like truly be grateful? And how can we actually uh, cultivate a heart of gratitude that whenever we come to any situation or any season of life or any unmet expectation or any loss of life or any pain that we see in the world, that our, our reaction to that is to turn towards God and find hope and be filled with the overwhelming sense of the goodness of God. And so today we're going to be looking at a prophet, a minor prophet in the Old Testament that maybe some of you might not have read or studied a lot. It will be uh, the book of Habakkuk. And so if you do uh, have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. And we're going to be doing the whole book today, which is possible because it's three chapters. Uh, it's still an undertaking, but it's going to be great, okay? Uh, Habakkuk, a minor prophet. What is the difference between a major and a minor prophet? Simply the size of the book or the letter. That's it. Uh, the theology presented in the minor prophets are the same amount of truth and revelation for us to know God, know ourselves, know how to respond to the world around us. But with that being said, often we might not spend a lot of time reading uh, the minor prophets. So today we're going to be doing an overview of the book of Habakkuk. And I think that's very appropriate to this topic because of the situation that Habakkuk finds himself. It's the situation that uh, we just saw from Alan Francis Gardner, a situation of, of hopelessness, it seems. And, and his reaction towards God in the midst of hardships and how he turned from worry to worship. That's my hope and my heart for today. So let me give you a quick context of the book of Habakkuk. Uh, so if you remember, God called Abraham 
and through Abraham and then his son Isaac and then Jacob turned to Israel. Uh, he becomes the great uh, leader of the nation of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel. And there's this moment that, that God calls through this line of people, this man named David, who he raises up to be king. And he promises him that through your line, King David, a one will come who will live and reign on the Davidic throne forever with righteousness and justice. And the nation of Israel at the time of King David, it was prosperous and successful, a global world power. And then he has a son named Solomon. And Solomon is the wisest man who ever lived, even though he did a lot of foolish things. And Solomon ultimately amasses wealth and prosperity and all the world looks to Israel as this world power. But then Solomon has a son named Rehoboam who is foolish and doesn't listen to wise counsel. And ultimately his foolishness leads to the division of the nation of Israel. This giant nation splits in two. You have the northern kingdom of Israel made up of 10 tribes. And then the southern kingdom of Judah made up of two tribes. And as these other world powers are coming to be, there's this one nation called Assyria who rises up to power. And in 722, Assyria sacks the northern kingdom of Israel, takes it captive, which is directly in line with what God said would happen in Deuteronomy chapter 28, when he gave the Israelites his law, the Mosaic law. If you, if you obey, then you'll be blessed. But if you disobey, discipline, curses will come upon you that will lead you to repentance back to me. And so Israel is sacked by this pagan nation of Assyria in 722. But then another nation rises to power called Babylon. And Babylon ultimately takes over Assyria. Another world power comes to play, takes over Assyria. And it's right around 605 BC that the kingdom of Babylon attacks the southern kingdom of Judah. And when was this book written? By Habakkuk. Around 606 to 600 BC. And in fact, you're going to see three attacks from Babylon. And in 586, Babylon will take over the city of Judah. It will decimate the city. It will destroy the walls. It will destroy the temple of God. And it will take the people captive back to Babylon. So Habakkuk is a prophet that is noticing the world around him crumbling. Literally, a nation that has risen up is coming to attack them and will ultimately destroy them. And he's looking around at his fellow Israelites in the southern kingdom, and he's recognizing that they're wicked and unrighteous. And he's seeing that God is going to discipline them. And Habakkuk is going to write this book. And what's unique about the book of Habakkuk is it's not actually Habakkuk as a prophet speaking to the people on behalf of God. It's actually Habakkuk having a dialogue back and forth with God, asking the questions that many of us are going to ask. Where are you, God? Why are you allowing the things to happen that are happening? Why do I have to be the one at this evil time in this evil place to face this moment? God, where are you? Do you even hear me? This is the prophet Habakkuk. And he's ultimately showing us Many different things about God and God's response to Habakkuk shows us things about God and allows us to find a place where we can be thankful in the midst of a crisis and chaos and unknowns. So let's go ahead and first we'll be in chapter 1, 1 through 4. 
But the first reason we're going to see that we can be thankful in one through four is this, that we worship and serve an attentive God. We can be thankful because of the attentiveness of God. Let's go ahead and look Habakkuk chapter one, verses one through four. It says this. The following is the message which God revealed to Habakkuk the prophet. This is what Habakkuk yells out and complains to God. How long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. I call out to you violence, but you do not intervene. Why do you force me to witness injustice? Why do you put up with wrongdoing? Destruction and violence, they confront me. Conflict is present and one must endure strife. For this reason, the law lacks power and justice is never carried out. Indeed, the wicked intimidate the innocent. And for this reason, justice is perverted. I wonder how many of you pray prayers like that to God. Where are you, God? What are you doing? Do you not see the evil that I'm being confronted with? You're letting injustice run rampant. How and why would Habakkuk speak to God in this way? Because Habakkuk is showing us something. That in reality, God is attentive to our desperate needs and desires for his people to speak to him. That he actually wants to hear from us and God is waiting and he's listening. And this moment as Habakkuk cries out, he shows honesty way more than the average religious person and way more faithful than a secular person. He's real with his heavenly father. He's real with God. And I just wonder how often my prayer life is hidden a lot behind a lot of theological pithy statements or things I want to be true. And yet I'm not honest in my approach to prayer with God. That God is attentive to our needs and he wants us to recognize the reality of our situations. So again, the reason I wanted to teach this sermon is I think often we walk into Thanksgiving, it's like everyone be thankful all the time, be thankful, thankful, thankful. And it's like, man, some of us are going through some really, really hard things. And you're like, how, how could I possibly be thankful right now in this moment? And what Habakkuk shows us is you're allowed to be honest with God and with one another. That the church is meant to be a hospital for sinners. It's supposed to be a place that I can come to God in my desperation and in my truthfulness and in my honesty. So we, before we move forward, I just want you to think about maybe where you're at. I'm not trying to make you gloomy. I'm simply trying to say, have you evaluated the reality of the world around you? Because we do, in fact, live in a fallen, broken world that gives us a lot of problems. And I'm just going to give you some examples. And I want you to think maybe changing the way you pray to be real with God because he is actually attentive to your needs. Maybe it's the death of a loved one. I know many of us. Thanksgiving and Christmas is a time where we actually remember a lot of the people uh, that have gone before us, that have passed, and it hurts. God, why? Why would you allow such an incredible person to die? God, I hate death. I hate 
that my grandfather passed during COVID-19 in this moment. And, and it was so challenging. It was so hard. And rather than sugarcoating it, to be real, God, I, I hate what's happening. I hate this situation. Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe for Thanksgiving or Christmas, you're not able to see your family. Maybe they live overseas or maybe you can't get to them or maybe there's conflict in your family and you feel really alone. Or maybe there's some of you in this room that have a lot of unmet expectations in your uh, relationships. You feel lonely, you feel like a failure because you didn't get the relationship you were seeking or wanting by now. God, this hurts, I'm lonely. Maybe it's the suffering that we see of friends or family members. Why, God, won't you simply heal them or cure them? You are the great physician, and I know you have the power to do it. Can you move on behalf of your glory and intervene in this person's life and heal them completely? Bring yourself glory through this miraculous healing. Maybe it's the divisiveness of our nation. Why does everyone seem to want to hate each other and move towards uh, abusive dialogue rather than trying to find common ground? And it makes you fearful of having any conversations where you'll be singled out. Or maybe it's the world powers or the things that we see around the world that hurt. Thousands of people being killed every single day. We see what's going on in Israel and our hearts break. And, and I recognize that many of us, we feel that weight and the anxiety of the pain around us. I'm just encouraging you that you can, in fact, go to God with that. Because God desires to hear from you. He's a father that wants you to recognize that he's there, and he's listening, and he's in control. And what Habakkuk does is he says this, God, where are you? What are you doing? And God replies to him. He says, oh, I will deal with the injustice and the wickedness that you see in the southern kingdom of Judah. How am, how am I going to deal with the problem? I'm going to raise up this world power, this pagan nation, to sack the city. I'm going to discipline and bring justice to my people through a pagan nation because God can use for evil turning it into good this moment. And so because of that, Habakkuk then says, after he hears God say, I'm going to use this pagan nation to, to bring about justice, Habakkuk says, Lord, in verse 12, you have been active from ancient times, my sovereign or my eternal God. You are immortal or God, you never die. You are living and active from the very beginning and you never die. And it's interesting because right after he says this, God's gonna then intervene again and say, this is what I'm gonna do. Yes, I'm going to use a pagan nation to bring about justice to my people. And now you're wondering why would I do that? Well, let, I'll let you know that I'm the righteous judge. I will, in fact, judge the nation of Babylon. But he says, God says something that's really opposite of this moment in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 12 where, where Habakkuk says, you God are alive and active and immortal, you never die. But this is what God says about the people of Babylon that he's gonna bring justice and righteousness to. He says this, what good is an idol? Why would a craftsman make it? What good is a metal image that gives misleading oracles? Why would its creator place his trust in it and make such mute, worthless things? The one who says to wood, wake up, is as good as dead. He who says to speechless stone, awake, can it give reliable guidance? It is overlaid with gold and silver, 
It has no life's breath inside it. But the Lord is in his majestic palace. The whole earth is speechless in his presence. What is God doing? He's showing Habakkuk something and showing us something. That even in the midst of judgment and discipline, and even in the effects of the fallen world of sin that creates chaos in your life, I'm living and I'm active. Unlike those people who don't have a relationship with God, those who worship uh, idols, like the Babylonians, they don't have anywhere to turn to and to trust in in the midst of their calamity. Because again, God is attentive to us. He hears us and he cares deeply about us. He is like, he's like the father that would rather hear his children talk to him and struggle and complain than not talk to him at all. And that, that makes a lot of sense to us who are parents. I would rather still hear from my kids, even if it's not always the best things to hear. Because that means they somehow have a relationship that they move towards me in. Like Habakkuk and Moses and Jeremiah and Joe, we too can approach God seeking to understand through honest doubt. Honest doubt and prayer. So again, God is attentive to our needs. We can be thankful we worship a God who sees us, who understands our pain, which I'll expand upon. And God is neither indifferent or insensitive to what's going on. God deeply cares. In fact, from the very beginning, God created us to live in shalom and perfection and how everything is supposed to be, supposed to work. That God made man, put him in the Garden of Eden, which means life, and he gave him Eve, right? life and paradise and he walks with his people and everything's good until it's not because humanity sins. They fall short of what God has called them to do. And because of that, sin brings death, which is separation. And in separation, we, we struggle and we face the consequences of our sin and our relationship with God has been marred. And even at the very beginning, Genesis chapter three, God says, I will raise up someone who will put an end to this hostility, I'll put an end to the enemy himself. And God from the very beginning saw us and wanted a relationship with us. And that's why he sent Jesus. And that's why we're about to get to celebrate Advent season and looking back at the arrival of our savior of God in the flesh. See, Jesus lived a life perfectly and he never once sinned. He was tempted just as we are in every way, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, we don't have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us now, all of us, the church, confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find help whenever we need help. The illustration I love to think about as as Jesus faces temptations, he is the great boulder that's on the edge of the ocean and the waves hit this giant boulder, but he's immovable. And yet he experiences the wave to its fullest every single time because he never once gives in to temptation. And many of us, all of us in fact, are like pebbles and the waves come and some of us might be a little sturdier, but we all give in to temptation and we get pushed to and fro by the waves. And Jesus is our anchor. He never moved. He was tempted as we are, but he never gave in. And so Jesus experienced those things 
Not so he can look down at us and simply give us sympathy. I'm sorry, guys, that y'all are going through hard stuff because you did it. But rather, I, I know how you feel. I know the experiences that you have. Jesus experienced loneliness. He experienced loss of loved ones. He experienced betrayal. He experienced sickness. He experienced frustration. He experienced weariness. He experienced ridicule, rejection, sorrow. And so do we. And so when we come to God, we can in fact still be thankful. Praise God that we worship a God who is attentive He invites us to come to him wherever we are, however we are. The second thing we can be thankful for, regardless of the situation, is the dependability of God. God is so faithful and he's so true. He's faithful to his people. He's faithful to his promises. See, and this is chapter two. See, as Habakkuk throws up this complaint and God responds saying, I will come and sack the city through Babylon. Then Habakkuk says, I'm just gonna sit here and watch and wait to see what you're gonna do. Verses one through four of chapter two, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what God will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, How quickly God responds. He goes from worrying and wondering to watching and waiting expectantly for God to move. And God moves. The Lord answers me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. So in this moment, God immediately answers Habakkuk and he says, you know what you can't put your trust in? Not that situations around you will be perfect and you'll be comfortable and you'll experience external prosperity and all these other things. What you can put your hope in is my promises, my word, the things that I say, you can trust those things. You can find yourself sure footing based on my revelation to you. And he ends it with this line, the righteous shall live by faith, which is probably the most famous line from the book of Habakkuk. And it's repeated three times in the New Testament. And one book that we've been studying all semester, Romans chapter one, verse 16, says this, Romans 1, 16, for I am unashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What is that saying? It's saying, you know what? The righteous people of God receive God's righteousness simply by trusting in the gospel. It is the gospel that saves you and it is the gospel that sanctifies you. To believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, saying thank you God for what you've given me puts you in this camp that you receive the righteousness of God. But notice it takes faith. I have to trust and depend upon his promises, his character, his person. Secondly, you see it in Galatians chapter three, verses 11. And in this moment you see, no one is justified by works of the law. 
And that's the whole book of Galatians. If you're trying to measure up to be good enough to receive a relationship with God or be holy because of your works, you will always fail. However, faith, not works, is the basis for a justified relationship with God. No one is justified by the law. And third, and this is the one that's really appropriate for the book of Habakkuk. Chapter 10, verse 38 of Hebrews. What is Hebrews all about? Jesus is better. That's like the summary of the whole book. Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is worthy of following even in persecution, even in facing the consequences of being a follower of Jesus. And in this time period, it was extensive. And he's telling them over and over to not cast off their faith, to apostatize, but rather turn to Jesus by faith, live So live faithfully by trusting in the promises of God. And they all get that from this book of Habakkuk, where he's saying, the Lord is saying to him in this moment, in this season, as you're about to experience calamity and chaos and disappointment and doubts, trust me, trust me because I'm dependable. Because we follow a God who is dependable. He is faithful to his people and he's faithful to his promises. And the third thing we're going to see in chapter 3 is the reason for thankfulness is that we serve and worship a God who is great and good. He is sovereign, he's in control, and yet he also is for our good. He's for our good. And this is kind of the summary. Habakkuk's really a, a poet too. He's a poet, a prophet, and he writes hymns, and this is a song of praise, all of chapter 3. It's a hymn of praise, and here's kind of the outline. But what he's doing is he is praising God. He goes from worrying and complaining to watching and waiting, and then finishes his short little book with worship, the entire last part of the book, in the midst of hardship. He praises God's arrival on the scene. He praises God's appearance. He praises God's actions in nature and among the nations. And then the last three verses, the last three verses He says, this is where I find my hope and my peace. This is where I find my joy. Verses 17 through 19, follow along with me. When the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, when the olive trees do not produce and the fields yield no crops, when the sheep disappear from the pen and there are no cattle in the stalls. I'll just stop right there. What is Habakkuk depicting in this moment? He's depicting death. Because in the nation of Israel, and at this time, if there's no fig trees producing or grapes or olive trees, and the yield's not producing crops, and there's no sheep, and there's no cattle, you have famine. And you have death. People will be dying. This is a hard moment. And what Habakkuk's saying is when these things happen, when the hardships come, when death comes, This is his response. I will rejoice because of the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my source of strength. He has made my feet like the deer's and has me walk on my high places, which is where you get the book, Hind's Feet on High Places, allegory of Habakkuk. So in this moment, what Habakkuk says is in the midst, when it comes, I will rejoice in God. 
I will rejoice because God is my source of strength and of joy and of salvation itself. And I love this. He's going to make my feet like a deer that can handle the hard situations. God will actually provide what I need to withstand the hard season. And I will rejoice in my God and my loneliness and my despair and my hurt and my pain and my chaos. And in this moment, when I get there, I will rejoice because where I put my hope is unchanging. It's not based on external prosperity or comfort or my control or my image or or how people think about me or how successful I feel I am. It's not based on those things. It's based on my Lord and Savior, my God, who is my refuge. And I love that we sang that song at the very beginning that what the enemy meant for evil, God turns for good. And a little spoiler alert for next week with Brian, but Romans chapter eight, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things, not just the really good things. God causes all things. He causes COVID-19, 9-11, chaos, war, famine, death, persecution, struggles, conflicts, every wicked, horrible, evil thing that has come about because of sin in the world, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That Habakkuk in this moment can go again from worrying and finishing with worshiping because his hope is in God who is attentive, is dependable. He's in control of all situations. And in that control, he then turns it into good for the people who love him and are called according to his purpose. So I just wanna stop and say, what do we do with that? Like, okay, I get it. God is great and good and dependable and trustworthy. He's faithful, he's attentive, he cares, he sees me, he understands me, he knows me. But, but how, do I, how do I cultivate a heart of gratitude that I can be ready when that actually comes, that I can be ready in that season? The way that we cultivate gratitude is first we see what Habakkuk does in chapter three, verse 18. He repeats, I will rejoice. I will be happy. He's got a rhythm. There's a cadence to his poetry that, that he's saying, I, I will instill practices. I will instill rhythms and habits that turn me not to my external situations and circumstances, but rather it will turn me back to God. I will look to God. I will put things in my life that cause me to think about God and his character and the hope I have in him. This is the spiritual disciplines of meditation, morning prayer, creating habits of gratitude. I remember an old mentor told me, before your feet hit the ground, let your knees hit the ground. And nowadays it's like, before you reach over and grab your phone and look at the sports update or your email to check your work or to look at the latest news in the world, like before you do that, where is your focus? Is it externally focused or is it pointed upwards? We need to be a people that are filled with gratitude and we're not gonna find that in the world around us. We're gonna find that in the source of hope and joy. Second, what he does is he remembers. That's verses three through 15 of chapter three. 
Why does he review God's actions in nature and in the nations? Why does he look at God's miraculous power, how he saved the Israelites from Egypt? Why is he thinking about these things? It's because it's he's reminding himself, this is the God that I'm worshiping and serving. And I will remember all that he has done for me. He looks back at the faithfulness of God and his character. And I just want to encourage you, maybe something y'all can do over the next even month as we enter into Advent season all the way up to Christmas is maybe you, you put some practices in play to help you remember that God has been so good to you. He has been so faithful. He has created a way for us to have a relationship with him. But he's also given us lots of great gifts. Something my wife and I started doing at the beginning of November is we just try and write one thing we're thankful for on a little strip of paper, our name and the date. And if someone comes over, we invite them to do the same. Just one thing you're thankful for, name and date. And at the end, we're going to then over Advent season, link all those together and just hang it up in our house where we can actually look and see all the things people are grateful for. And it's amazing because just doing that little practice of writing one thing that I am thankful for about God and his character or something he's done, but doing that every day, and I'm, I'm like writing like big theological things I love, and then I ask my two-year-old, and she's like, I'm grateful for milk. And I'm like, we can be grateful for milk. Like, that's amazing. It's right, that I'm realizing nothing is too small for us to be grateful for. And nothing is too big, obviously. And that as I'm doing this over and over, it's crazy how my heart is actually starting to be more aware of the things God's given me rather than the things that I want to get, the things that I don't have, the hardships that I might face because I'm focused on God and his faithfulness to me and not necessarily the things that I simply want to have. And third, we can rejoice. That's what he says in 18 and 19. I will rejoice or I will be happy because of God. That is, his heart posture is worship. That he praises God for who he is. He sings songs of praise. That's in fact the, the third chapter. It's a song of praise. He's writing out promises. He's thinking about God's faithfulness. He's waiting expectantly. And for us, what can we do to, to rejoice? Well, obviously during you know, Sunday mornings, we come together and we worship God through song. We do that and remind one another of who we serve and what he's doing and what he will do. That he will, in fact, make all things right. That Revelation 21 and 22 are true. That whatever hardship I face or you face, one day, that will be no more. That every te tear, every suffering, death, the problems of the world that we see, the injustice around us, the pain we experience in our bodies, whatever it is, one day that goes away. And that's a promise. And I rest in that. And I rejoice in that. And I say, Lord Jesus, please come. Like, come back and do that. Because that's what I want to experience right now. And I hope that's the longing of our hearts is for Jesus to return and to make all things right. So again, the reason that we can be thankful and thus repeat, remember, and rejoice is this, that we worship a God who is attentive. God invites you to come to him wherever you are, however you are. That we worship a God who is dependable. He is faithful to his people. And he's faithful to his promises. And lastly, we follow a God who is in control because he's great, but he's also for our ultimate good.
That means we can be a people that respond to the world in such a different way than everyone around us. That they see us and they say, how can you respond when your life looks like that and when the world looks like that? How do you find such peace or joy or hope? And you get to point to the hope that you have in and through the gospel, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we recognize that there are so many things to be grateful for. And primarily, God, we are grateful and thankful for you and who you are. God, that you are worthy of our life. You're worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our dedication. God, you're worthy of that even without all the things that you've done for us. And yet, God, you've done so much for us. God, that you sent your own son put on flesh, lived the life we couldn't, died the death that we deserved, rose victorious from the grave, offering us redemption, offering us salvation in and through the work of your son. God, I just pray for each person in this room that as we go from here, that that we can stop and be real with you about where we're hurting or the needs that we have or the pain that we're experiencing because we recognize, God, you, you care. You empathize. You see us. God, you're also dependable that what you say will happen, will happen. Your promises are true and we get to stand upon your word, God, not on life situations and circumstances. I'm so grateful for that, God, because we'd be a mess. And God, we also just look to you as the sovereign God who is in control that spoke the universe into existence. God, that you can use all things for the good of people that you love and love you. I pray for each of us that we would walk away from here being a people filled with hope and peace and gratitude, no matter what external circumstances we might experience, God. Help us to do that. We need your help, Holy Spirit. Help us to be like that. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.